Well, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and this morning we've come to the very last section in John chapter 6, John 6, verses 60 through 71. And let's just begin by reading that passage of Scripture together, John 6, beginning in verse 60. Hear the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. In recent years, evangelicalism has witnessed a movement often called deconstruction. In general, it just refers to the process of people who grew up in evangelical churches re-examining and then rejecting parts or all of the beliefs that they'd always held to. Sometimes such figures have called themselves exvangelicals. Many prominent figures within the evangelical movement have deconstructed and become exvangelicals, including Christian music artists like Derek Webb of Cademan's Call or Kevin Max of DC Talk, influential authors like Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Held Evans, even pastors like Joshua Harris and Rob Bell. And other well-known figures within evangelicalism like John Piper's son Abraham and a former worship leader at Hillsong famously defected from the faith named Marty Sampson. Such figures, of course, are only the more prominent names in a much larger group of people who have walked away from the evangelical faith that they grew up with. Some have left quietly really having no desire to disrupt the faith of others. But many have become outspoken critics of evangelicalism and actively seek to get others to follow them down the path of deconstruction that they have walked. Now, of course, the terminology is new, but the phenomenon now called deconstruction isn't new at all, is it? It's been going on in the church throughout its history. In fact, you can see it in the New Testament itself. The older term used to describe it is apostasy, 
which actually comes from a Greek word, apostasia, often in the New Testament meaning rebellion or abandonment or defection. And that term and other terms are used in the New Testament to describe people abandoning the Christian faith they once professed. So then, while the deconstruction movement is especially grievous for us because it's taking place now in evangelicalism, yet it really shouldn't surprise us because something like it has been happening in the church since the beginning. And one place we see it is right here in our text. John 6, 60-71. Now let me just remind you of the context here. The chapter opened in verses 1-15 through with Jesus performing the fifth or the fourth of seven miraculous signs that are recorded in John's gospel. He multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men and their families in a remote place on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And then after sailing back across the sea that night, Jesus had a discourse, a discussion the next day with the Jews who had eaten the bread the day before, who had now come to Capernaum. And there he explained to them the meaning of the miraculous sign that they had seen, or at least heard about. And what he said is that That miracle of him multiplying the loaves to feed 5,000 people pointed to his identity as the true bread who had come down from heaven, from God, to give eternal life to those who believe in him. That truth was actually summarized in the first of what will be seven I am statements recorded in John's Gospel. So we heard the phrase, I am the bread of life. However, just as the Exodus generation of Israelites had grumbled when God gave them manna out of heaven through Moses, so these Israelites, these Jews, now grumbled in unbelief Because Jesus claimed to be the bread of God who had come down out of heaven to give life to the world. And what we saw as the chapter progressed is that Jesus responded to their grumbling, not by saying, well, hold on now, let me explain what I mean, but instead by teaching them things that were even more difficult to swallow. So after claiming to be the bread of life, he then declared that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have that eternal life. Now, of course, as I explained, he was speaking metaphorically about participating in the benefits of his death, of his coming sacrifice upon the cross by faith. But as we see happens repeatedly in the Gospel of John. The people hearing him misunderstood what he was saying because they took it too literally. And Jesus himself acknowledged in verses 44 through 45 that none of them would be able to accept his words and come to him in faith for eternal life unless they were taught 
and drawn to him by the Father. And that brings us to our text, which interestingly shifts from describing how the crowds of Jews responded to Jesus' difficult teaching to describing now how his own disciples responded to it. Now notice, as we move into our text, beginning in verse 60, John is still here focusing on the response of people to Jesus' teaching in this bread of life discussion or discourse. But the focus now has shifted from the Jews, who are mentioned in verses 41 and 52, to his disciples in verse 60. The Jews had grumbled about Jesus and what he'd said, according to verse 41. You see the word grumbled there. Now, how would his own disciples respond? Now, let me just clarify that the word disciples means we're talking about people who had professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah and had begun following him as learners. People, they, would, they were people who were trying to learn from his teaching, to obey his commands as their master, to follow his example in their lives. However, it's also important to point out that when you get down to verse 67 in our text, you realize that that phrase, his disciples, in verse 60, must be a much broader group than the 12 disciples, his inner circle of disciples. So most likely, in verse 60, when he says, his disciples, we're talking about maybe hundreds of people at this point, in this larger group who professed faith in Christ and begun following him. And John tells us that when this larger group of his disciples heard Jesus' words in this bread of life discourse, particularly the last part, his talk about giving them his flesh to eat, and saying that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they are going to have eternal life, it says even, quote, many of his disciples recoiled in disgust, in disbelief. Look what it says. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The word translated hard there, it in the context here, it means harsh or unpleasant. Not that they couldn't understand it, but that they found it hard to swallow. In other words, many of Jesus' own disciples found his words in the Bread of Life discourse so offensively grotesque that they just simply couldn't accept them. In fact... Jesus' own evaluation of them in verse 61 is that they had joined the unbelieving Jews in grumbling against him. And of course, that word has echoes back in redemptive history to the Israelites in the desert who'd grumbled against God and perished. So look what it says there in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
Now, once again, we're told that Jesus had this supernatural knowledge about people, just as he knew. Do you remember the woman at the well had had five husbands and that the man she was with was not her husband? Well, so now he knew that many of his disciples were grumbling about his teaching behind his back. And he promptly confronted them about it. He said, do you take offense at this? Now, in saying that, Jesus declared that their grumbling was a sinful act of unbelief. They were stumbling over him. They had professed faith in him, that he was the Messiah, but now they're questioning the validity of his teaching. Why? Because they found it offensive. It didn't make sense to them, but more than that, it grated against their sensibilities. Now, of course, we ought to pause here, shouldn't we? And just note that the same thing happens with many people who profess faith in Christ today, many disciples of Jesus today, many of those who would say that he is the Messiah and have begun to follow him in some fashion, would, while reading the Bible, the words of the Spirit of God, would question the validity of certain things that they find in there. Because they are offensive. They're offended by them. In fact, I would argue that even such basic things as what the Scripture teaches about the total depravity of man, how bad man really is, the judgment of a righteous God against human sin, the notion of God the Father offering up God the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice and pouring out His judgment against our sin on His own beloved Son. The need for sinners to repent and believe in Him for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. The righteous standards which God calls His people to. You know, these truths rarely make it into the positive and encouraging music played on popular Christian radio stations. Nor, we might add, are they usually heard from the pulpits of many evangelical churches. Why? Certainly not because they are minor themes of Scripture which can be sort of discarded without much effect upon God's people. Quite the contrary. I mean, those things I just mentioned are fundamental elements of the gospel itself and of the broader body of sound doctrine taught in the scripture. They're vital both to salvation and to the sanctification of Christ's people. So why do people leave them out? I think it's because many who profess to believe and follow Jesus Christ find the actual teaching of Scripture in many places hard to swallow. So, they avoid them, at best, and focus on things in the Scripture that they find more palatable. Perhaps some of you in this room have felt that way in your heart. But we must hear the rebuke of Jesus 
to those disciples who grumbled against his teaching in the bread of life discourse. Do you take offense at this? In other words, do you find the words of God difficult to accept? If so, perhaps the problem is not so much with his words. After all, he is God. The psalmist says his words are true and righteous altogether, like silver refined seven times. Perhaps the problem is with the operation of our finite and fallen minds and the values of our corrupted hearts. I think we ought to remember the words of the Lord in Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, after calling out many of his own disciples for grumbling about his teaching and saying to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus, he went on in verse 62. Look what he says there. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now that is somewhat difficult as a statement to interpret. It's not that the meaning is unclear. The meaning's clear. He's clearly referring to the fact that one day in the future he would, after raising from the dead, ascend into heaven. And he's asking these disciples, what would you do? How would you respond if you saw that happen? The difficulty is in understanding what exactly his point is in saying this. My best guess is that Jesus was saying to these disciples that their grumbling called their true spiritual condition into question. Did they really believe in him as the Messiah? If they questioned his teaching, after all they had seen him do as his disciples, the miracles they'd seen him perform, including the one he performed the previous day, multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men and their families. Then, perhaps even the greatest evidence, seeing him ascend into heaven before their eyes would would not be enough to convince them to trust in him. And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would you believe then? Then Jesus followed that difficult statement up with another one in verse 63. There he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I think the best interpretation of this, it seems to me, is that Jesus is correcting the wrong understanding of his disciples about what he had been teaching. They were grumbling at his teaching. Why? Because they misunderstood what he had been saying. When he said, for instance... Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. They thought, what is he talking about? Literally eating his physical body and blood? That offended them. Now, instead of trusting Jesus, saying, well, he is the Messiah, uh, that he must have, he must be true in what he's saying, and Asking him, for instance, Lord, help us understand what you're saying. They just become offended. 
they start grumbling against him. And he's telling them now, look, I wasn't saying that eating my physical body and drinking my physical blood would give you eternal life. Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, eating my flesh wouldn't give you eternal life. The Holy Spirit has to give it to you. But then he went on to say, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That is to say, the words that he had been speaking to them in the Bread of Life discourse, these words which they found so difficult to swallow, did point them to the means by which the Holy Spirit would give them eternal life. So he had told them, for instance, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And earlier we had seen what he meant by coming to him and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It was to believe in him, to trust in his sacrifice. In other words, he had revealed to them through these words they found so offensive that he had come from God to give eternal life through the offering of his body upon the cross and anyone who would come to him, who would feed upon him by Believing in him would receive the eternal life that his sacrifice secured as a gift. But when he said, it is the spirit who gives life. I think he meant that they needed the Holy Spirit to enable them to believe that good news. Left to themselves, they were dead in sin, unable to come to him. They needed to be born of the Spirit, as he had said back in chapter 3 to Nicodemus. They needed to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit so that they might be able to understand what Jesus was saying and accept the message of hope that he was proclaiming to them. Another way of saying this is that true saving faith is a gift from God granted to dead sinners through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus meant, I think, back in verses 44 and 45, when he had told the Jews who were grumbling against him, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's interesting. This is not some cryptic note that Jesus only says here. He says it other places as well in his ministry. For instance, do you remember back in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, he had declared this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or you think of when Peter made that famous confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, in Matthew 16, verse 16. 
You remember how Jesus replied? He didn't say, good going, Peter. You're smarter than the rest of them. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come up to it with it on your own. But my Father who is in heaven. So this truth, that God grants saving faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. That has some important implications for us that I think we ought to just consider for a moment. For instance, it means that saving faith, while it does involve a volitional choice to believe, it can't be reduced merely down to a free human decision. Because left to ourselves... In our natural state, the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enslaved to our sin. So if God left it up to us in our natural state, okay, decide whether you're going to believe or not, no one would do so. This is what Paul, I think, indicates in Romans 8, 7, when he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Rather, God must first initiate things. He must choose to come along and regenerate the heart by the power of His Holy Spirit so that they will understand and believe the gospel. Jesus told Nicodemus this in John 3.3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This means, That salvation is not just some cooperative effort where, you know, God does his part and then says, okay, the rest is up to you. It's all of God from beginning to end. Even our faith by which we receive salvation is a gift that he gives us by the regenerating work of the Spirit so that all the glory goes to him and him alone. Isn't this what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It also means that if we want to see other people saved, our children, perhaps a spouse, friends of yours, neighbors, co-workers, you have to not only proclaim the gospel to them, And call them to respond to it in repentance and faith. You also have to pray desperately that God would give to them His Holy Spirit. So that they might be able to do so. And in His great love, He often chooses to do just that. We're all living proof of it, aren't we? You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 4-5? He says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So you can pray for loved ones and for their salvation with good hope. God is a God of love. So, verse 63. Jesus told his disciples that the very words they were grumbling about were spirit and life. And then he went on to say in verses 64 and 65. 
but there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds this parenthetical note here. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. They couldn't have been his disciples unless they had professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, right? That's why he referred to him here as his disciples. But what Jesus tells us here is that not all of those who had professed faith in him truly believed. There were some who do not believe. Some of them, he says, were false professors. And did you notice, this did not at all surprise him. Because John gives us that note. He tells us that Jesus always knew their hearts. One thinks of John's comments way back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is the very beginning of his ministry. Listen to what he says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see it? From the very beginning of his ministry, when people first started professing faith in him as the Messiah, Jesus knew their hearts that some of them did not truly believe in him. Not all faith, in other words, is true saving faith. There were always goats in the sheep pen. And he knew who they were. In verse 66 we see that those whose faith in Jesus was not genuine who had not truly been drawn to him by the Father, began to show themselves. How did they do it? By no longer professing faith in Jesus and no longer following him. So you see it right there. After this, many of his disciples, many of his disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, One of the marks of true saving faith is that it endures. It endures through every pressure brought to bear on it. This was the primary point, for instance, of Jesus' so-called parable of the sower. One place you can find it is in Luke 8. And he used there the imagery of a sower taking seed out of his bag and casting it onto the field. And that imagery of a sower casting seed upon his field, it, it symbolized the indiscriminate proclamation of the gospel to whoever would hear it. But then Jesus points out that that seed falls on different kinds of soil. And he says that the seed falling on different soils represents or symbolizes the different way that people respond to the gospel. And this is what he said. In Luke 8, 13 through 15. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. There's a profession of faith there. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. 
As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience or endurance. You see? The rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. They all represent people who hear the gospel and respond to it with a profession of faith. But the rocky soil and the thorny soil represents people whose faith turns out to be false because it doesn't endure when put to the test, whether tribulations or temptations. Whereas the good soil represents faith which proves to be true because it remains steadfast through every trial with patience. It's important to note that when people fall away after a one-time professing faith, like is discussed in this parable, it's not that they were truly saved and then lost their salvation. That's impossible. In fact, Jesus talked about this earlier in the chapter. He says, all whom the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not cast them out. I will raise them up on the last day. So all whom the Father has given to them who truly believe will finally be saved. They're not losing their salvation. Rather, it's that they were never truly saved in the first place because their faith was not genuine faith. Remember, Jesus told this group of disciples in verse 63, there are some of you who do not believe. But they were his disciples. They professed faith in him, but he's saying they didn't truly believe. The author of this gospel, the Apostle John, had actually made this very same point in his first letter, 1 John. And he was talking in that letter about some in his day who had been in the church, they'd professed faith, and then they had departed from it, and they departed from the true gospel. And he says this in 1 John 2.19. You say, well, how does he explain that phenomenon? This way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. In other words, when certain Christians abandon their faith and leave the church, they prove that they never were true Christians in the first place. That's a simple way of putting it. They'd been in the church wearing the clothing of sheep, but reality, they had been goats all along. The churches didn't know it, They had received them into the membership of the church based on their profession of faith. After all, we can't look into people's hearts. But their eventual departure revealed the true condition of their souls, which only God can see. We might also add at this point that sometimes false professors are revealed through, for instance, blatant unbelief in the gospel or disobedience, which they are refusing to repent of but they don't leave the church. What do you do then? Well, this is where church discipline comes in, right? 
And Jesus lays out the process in Matthew 18 that you call them to repentance. But if they finally will not listen to one and two and even to the whole church, he says you are to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Every true Christian church should be committed to doing that. Which means every member of the church must be willing to support and participate in that process. It's a matter of obedience to Christ, both for the good of His church and for the glory of His name. But next, even as many of His disciples departed from Him here, Jesus turned next to His twelve, that inner circle of disciples. He later calls them apostles because they were his special messengers sent with a special role of laying the foundation of the church through their teaching and through their leadership. And so we read in verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now many commentators have pointed out that the grammatical construction of this verse indicates that Jesus' question to them was not like, what about you? Do you want to go too? No, that's not how it's, what it means. It's a rhetorical question. He says to them, the NIV actually captures it well. You do not want to leave too, do you? So Jesus' intent in asking this question is not to find out whether they're going to stay or leave. But rather what we see is it's a way of eliciting from them a confession of true faith that would stand in contrast to the grumblings and the unbelief of those who had gone away. And that confession is there in verses 68 and 69. And there we read, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now I want you to notice that Peter doesn't say, Lord, we got it. We understood what you were talking about. It makes sense to us. Rather, his words seem to indicate that he and the rest of the twelve were just as baffled by what Jesus had said as the other disciples who had left. But it was how he responded to that that was different. Instead of taking offense at Jesus, grumbling at him in unbelief, no longer following him because it, Peter and the other disciples just trusted him. Even when they found his words difficult to understand or to accept. Their struggle to understand, in other words, didn't shake their belief in him that, yes, he was the Messiah. He says, we have become convinced that you are the Messiah. Where else are we going to go, Lord? We don't understand what you're saying, but we know it must be true. You're the Messiah. We've got no other option here. No one else can give us eternal life. You know, Peter, later on, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven, he would stand before the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin and he would say this. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what true saving faith looks like. It consists in a settled conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as a result, it continues trusting in Him, 
even when put to test in various ways. So when true believers look at something in the scripture and in their flesh and in their finiteness, they find it difficult to understand or difficult to accept. They assume it is true and they pray for help to understand it. When they face an overwhelming trial that makes them feel abandoned by Christ, they say, no, Christ hasn't abandoned me. They cling to him. They're confident that he has some good and wise purpose that is hidden from their sight, but that nothing can separate them from his love. When they're threatened by persecutors and ordered to compromise their faith or suffer a consequence, They refuse to do though because they know that they have to lose their life to gain it and that it will do them no good to gain the whole world and to forfeit their soul. Now this is not to say that even true believers might not temporarily compromise under pressure. After all, think about this Peter. He utters this glorious confession Here in verses 68 through 69, and just a couple years later, he denies Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was arrested. Even after he had adamantly said, I will never deny you. But that didn't mean that Peter's faith was false, did it? In reality, we know that he never stopped believing in Jesus, even though he compromised under pressure. And how do you know it? Because he returned after the resurrection. And you know, we learn a couple things from that. One is we learn that a true believer may fall away from Christ temporarily, but he will always come back eventually. And second, we also see that Our faith doesn't endure because of our inherent strength. Because if you think about Peter, why did Peter's faith not fail when he was sifted like wheat? Because Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that should humble us. It should lead us to say every day, not necessarily, I will never deny you, Lord. But Lord, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Because you know that your faith is preserved by his power. And yet, though Peter spoke on behalf of the twelve, he declared that they still believed in him, though other disciples had fallen away, Did you see how Jesus responded in verses 70 through 71? He revealed that even one of them did not truly believe, but would eventually reveal it by betraying him. See his words there? Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, this striking comment, it, it demonstrates, I think, what is a profound point concerning this whole matter of false professors. You think about the deconstruction movement going on right now in evangelicalism. 
How do we process this? Well, for one, we see that Jesus is not surprised or caught off guard by it. Rather, he knows those who, will, who do not truly believe. And when you look at the example of, Jesus, of Judas, and you see how the story unfolds, that Judas's betrayal was caught up and became part of the very plan of redemption by which God would save his people. You see that God not only knows ahead of time who will turn away from him, who does not truly believe, but he even weaves such examples of apostasy into his perfect plan. And they become part of the tapestry of his plan of redemption by which he accomplishes good for his glory. You know, while Judas, and he's called a devil because the devil was, would operate through him, they had a very malicious attempt, intent in betraying Jesus unto death. But Jesus saw it coming, and he willingly gave himself up into their hands so that God's purpose of redemption might be fulfilled through it. And I think this actually comes out very clearly in that famous chapter where he prayed what's often called his high priestly prayer on the night before he was betrayed. He said of his disciples, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, not every false professor who falls away has the same purpose in redemptive history as Judas did. Yet we have to understand and believe that they all do have a place in the eternal plan of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now this does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we somehow rejoice in apostasy. But it does give us a comfort amidst the grief and pain which apostasy causes that we can say, Lord, even these dark threads in redemptive history have a place in your wonderful tapestry that is your plan for the universe. And in the end, we know that all such evils will resound in your eternal glory somehow, somewhere. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's been extremely painful to watch, for those of us who have been watching, the deconstruction and exvangelical movement take place in recent years. To watch so many people who once professed faith in Christ, members perhaps of our own church or other churches that we know, roommates in college, fellow ministry workers, public figures, pastors, sometimes even close friends, family members, to see them turn away from following Christ. It's very difficult. Sometimes it could be unsettling to our own faith. And while this passage doesn't downplay the heartache of seeing people in the church commit apostasy, it does intend to prevent us from being disturbed 
thrown off, disillusioned. Because it assures us that this phenomenon is not unforeseen. It's not without purpose. Because it reveals to us in this text that there have always been some who profess faith in Christ who didn't truly believe. And they proved it when they eventually fell away under testing. As we saw in our text, this was, the true, this was true even among Jesus' 12 inner circle disciples. It's been true throughout redemptive history. And we shouldn't be shocked or alarmed when we see it happen today. But let me say to you, knowing that, we shouldn't become cynical, overly suspicious about whether people's faith is truly genuine. We're just humans, right? In general, what do we do? We just accept people's profession of faith at face value if it's credible. And we only question it if they begin denying Christ in their doctrine or practice. Regarding our own souls, this text isn't intended to make you worried. Perhaps I haven't truly believed. No, stop it. Just keep believing. Trust in his promises. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure, right? That's what Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 5-8. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which this passage should call some of us, perhaps in this room, to self-examination. If you claim to believe and follow Christ, but in reality you're offended by things that He teaches, things that you find in the Scriptures, and you find yourself grumbling against God, these are hard sayings, who can listen to them? You probably should stop. And examine your heart, as Paul said, to see if you are in the faith. Because let me tell you, we do not get to invent our own Jesus to believe in. You can always find a church that will present a Jesus that you like better. But we don't get to pick things out of the scripture and say, well, I like this, but I'm not so sure about that. What are you doing? You're making your own God. What is that? Idolatry. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Word become flesh to dwell among us, fully God, fully man. And as such, He is perfect and unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because He is the Lamb of God who has sacrificed Himself upon the cross to make atonement for the sins of His people. And He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has risen from the dead and has taken His seat at the right hand of God as King over all forever. And while Jesus is full, full of condescending grace, He invites Sinners like us to come to Him in faith and to receive salvation as a free gift of grace. Salvation from the judgment we deserve for our sins. 
Yet he also requires that we believe in him as he has revealed himself to us in the scripture. And to trust that all his words and deeds are true and right, whether or not we understand them or not. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you have not been willing to do those things, you should question, do I truly believe? Humble yourself before God. Repent of your pride before him that he might grant you mercy. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And let me tell you this, and this will be the last thing. Even if you've walked away from Christ down the path of deconstruction, it's not too late to turn back to him. Repent of your sin today. Jesus will forgive you and welcome you back. Believe in him now. Trust him to save you from your sin and wretchedness. He will give you eternal life out of his free favor. He's the bread of life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. They both wound us and heal us. They humble us and fill us with exaltation. Oh God, because we are sinners, we struggle with certain things that we find in your word, but we know they are true, and the problem is with us, not your holy word. We believe. Help our unbelief. Oh God, where else can we go but Christ? He alone has the words of eternal life. Strengthen our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.